The music industry is on the verge of another major structural change. So what should listeners, artists, and industry professionals expect over the years to come? The industry will be facing a very interesting turning point. Significant changes could take place in the coming months and coming years when it comes to the monetization of music content, to the segmentation of the different offerings, but also changes to the royalty payout system. I'm Alison Nathan, and this is Goldman Sachs Exchanges. The music industry is expected to be worth over $150 billion by 2030. Lisa Yang, my colleague in Goldman Sachs Research, joins me now to discuss Goldman Sachs's recent Music in the Air report, which analyzes how streaming, artificial intelligence, and changing listener behavior are affecting the industry. Lisa, welcome back to the program. Thank you for having me. So before we dive into your latest research, Lisa, set the stage for us in terms of how the consumption of music has changed over the last few decades. Music consumption has been through in a waves of changes in the last couple of decades, which largely followed changes in distribution and technology advancements. And it seems like the main catalyst for consumption change have been around convenience and cost. So historically, obviously, music was consumed mostly by physical means. You had the vinyls and cassettes and CDs. And then with the advent of the internet and mobile devices, then the consumption shifted rapidly to digital formats. So people went from buying, you know, $20 CD album to suddenly downloading an MP3, open for free, actually, and illegally, as obviously that first digital revolution also brought in widespread piracy. And then with the load of iTunes, you can start to unbundle the albums and pay 99 cents for a song. And then came what we call the second digital revolution, which changed media consumption again significantly from this time around, moving from ownership to access. Uh, And if you think about it, there were a number of ingredients at the time for streaming consumption to really start to take off. So firstly, the quality of the streaming services like Spotify and Apple Music were far greater than before, bringing greater convenience, accessibility and personalization. So that has driven more consumption of music and actually in a legal form, but also greater willingness to pay for it again. And there was also at the time a growing consumer preference, especially amongst the younger demographics for greater experience and convenience. So that obviously made them the ideal audience music streaming. So the combination of all these factors of the last decade have driven a surge in music consumption. If you look at global audio streams, they have gone up 2.5x since 2017. And last year, we reached another 3.5 billion of streams. And so is vinyl dead at this point or are people still consuming in the physical format? When you look at how music consumption had evolved the last few decades, every time you got a new format, then that has catalyzed the previous one, like it went from vinyls to cassettes and to CDs. And this time around, we also thought streaming will completely overtake digital downloads and also physical sales. And actually, the kind of opposite happened. There has been a resurgence in vinyl sales. And actually, it's been one of the fastest growing formats of the last 15 years, growing the 30% CAGR. And even seed in sales, which had to growth in 2021, which was, I think, surprised everyone's sort of expectation. And I think that does tell us that consumers are looking for the sort of experience and the enjoyment of owning and collecting CD and vinyls to probably better connect with their artists. And that just complements really well the convenience and interactivity of streaming services. And as the consumption of music has evolved, what generations are listening and spending the most? And has that changed? 
I think in terms of the demographics of streaming users, as uh, clearly now is the dominant form of music consumption, as you expect, the largest listening groups are the younger demographics, but they are also the groups that actually pay the most for music. And actually, it's not that surprising given the Gen Z and the millennials value experience and convenience over ownership. If you look at the penetration of paid subscription services, more than half of the 16 to 24 year olds and the 25 to 34 subscribe to music services. And that gradually comes down as you get to older demos and it falls to, I think, only 26% penetration for the 50 year old and plus. And what about musical genres? How are they changing? In terms of genres, I think obviously pop remains one of the most popular genres globally. And so hip hop, especially while younger demographics, but I think one of the growing trends, and very interesting trends we've seen in the last couple of years has been really the rise of the local and regional artists, regional music. We've observed an increasingly diverse set of artists and genres becoming successful at the global level. And that's because the digitalization of music has allowed local music to extend its reach globally. So for instance, we saw the rise of Latin music. You have artists like Bad Bunny or Carol G becoming global superstars and now dominating the global charts. You have the rise of K-pop. And just to give you an interesting stat, last year you had 28 current albums with more than 1 million units sold that compared to just one back in 2019. And then if you look at the top 10 setting artists on the IFPI chart in 2022, IFPI is the main industry body that represents the recording music industry. You had more than half of them being non-English language acts, with only one coming from the U.S. compared to, for instance, six in 2020. And so how have these many changes impacted revenues in the industry? As I mentioned, I think earlier you had the sort of first digital revolution at the end of 1990s and early 2000s which really, I think, brought, I think, almost a decade of deflation and moving people away from buying CDs or, or vinyls towards basically download music very often for free. So you've seen the industry almost half in the first 10 years after Napster, for instance, was launched. And then when you started to shift towards the sort of music subscription services with much higher revenue per user like Spotify and Apple Music and Amazon Music, etc. The industry was able to return to growth again after 15 years of decline. And the first year actually where it turned the corner was in 2015. And since then, the industry has just continued to accelerate and has been growing on average 8, 9, 10% in the last few years. And even in 2022, where obviously we faced the war, macro slowdown, and high inflation, the, the industry remained resilient and continued to grow high single digit, which really tells you that structural growth and it can grow any type of macro environment. I understand that a lot of streaming royalty payout structures are still in place, and these are pretty outdated at this point. How is that likely to evolve and what would be the implications for consumers? You're exactly right. I think as we've seen significant improvement technology, which has led to almost a collapse in the barriers to the distribution, creation of music content, we've experienced an explosion in the number of songs being released and obviously being consumed. I think it's never been as easy and cost-effective to produce and release a new song and then to get it distributed on a streaming service like Spotify, Apple, and obviously also on social media platforms like TikTok. Just to give you an example, there are now 120,000 songs uploaded a day onto Spotify that compared to just 20,000 songs per day in 2018. 
we've seen a significant growth in number of streaming users. And that led to obviously significant increase in audio streams. So 2.5 times since 2017. But the monetization has significantly lagged the increase in music consumption. But is that just because music is more accessible and so they just don't have as much pricing power, these streaming services? I just think it just hasn't been a focus, I think, for the music industry. We should not forget the industry only returned to growth in 2015, thanks to streaming after coming out of the decade of Paris and then bundling. So at the time, the objective of most of the music executives was to really first drive these users out of piracy towards legal forms of consumption, and then at a later stage, convert them to paying users. So a lot of the marketing strategies and product innovation have just been centered around driving user growth. So prior to October last year, if you look at the price points on the standard plans, whether it was uh, Spotify, Apple Music, they haven't changed for over a decade. It remains stuck at $9.99 in the US, for instance. Whereas if you compare to a sister industry like video streaming, all those subscription video streaming services have actually raised their prices by roughly 10% every two, three years. And also what's interesting to note is in terms of the product changes, most of the new plans that have been introduced over the last decade came at lower price points. If you think about the student plans or the family plans or even the Amazon Music Economy plan, they all came at lower price points, again, in order to chase new customers. And as a result of that, the average revenue per subscriber has fallen 40% since 2016. And the streaming services, though, started getting into the game last October. What happened last October? So for the first time last October, we began to see major streaming services like Apple Music taking prices up by 10% for the first time on the standard plan. They rated from $9.99 to $10.99 against the first time since it's launched that they actually raised prices. And since then, we've seen many other streaming services doing the same thing. So we had Amazon Music raising prices in February this year. And more lately, we had YouTube Music announcing some price increases. And a couple of weeks ago, it was the turn of Spotify. And obviously, the Spotify price increase was very long-awaited sort of price increase, given it is the largest streaming platform globally. We estimate that Spotify probably accounts for about 40% of the total streaming market. So it was really, really important that we saw Spotify raising prices. And I think the point we're making here is that we think those price increases, again, the first in more than a decade, are not just a one-off. Given the persistent administration of music content, and given what has happened in other industries like video streaming, we think there is a lot of headroom for music prices to continue to increase. Now, we are not entirely sure about this the cadence at which these prices will occur. In our industry model, we have assumed about a blended 3% weekly average price increase per year. And if you think about it, that equates to a 10% price increase every three years. But I think the opportunity is clear there. and It's pointing towards the right direction in terms of monetization. So we're hearing so much these days about super fans. We obviously have the Taylor Swift era's tour going on. Beyonce is on tour and you just have these super fans everywhere. And your report does discuss that opportunity and how to monetize it. Tell us a little bit about that trend. We definitely see an opportunity to better monetize the super fan with its streaming. Because when you look at the current streaming model, it actually doesn't distinguish between its users. It basically charges you like the same flat fee, let's say $9.99 or $10.99 after the recent price increases. And you pay the same whether you listen to you know, 10 hours of songs per month, 1,000 hours of songs. And yet it's pretty clear in a lot of consumer research shows that there is a propensity from the super fans to pay more. 
I mentioned earlier, the rise of the vinyl self. I don't think that's a coincidence. I do think this is evidence that fans do want to connect with the artists and be willing to pay more. In fact, half the vinyl buyers don't even have a record player. So far, there have been only a few attempts to charge a premium for extra features in the Western market. For instance, you have Tidal. I think they came up with a Hi-Fi Plus plan, which I think costs about $20 compared to $10 for the standard plan. Uh, but that's really it so far. And we do think at the time where subscriber growth is probably a bit harder to get, you're going to see more of the industry starting to focus more on monetization. And again, it could be the launch of new packages that includes additional functionality like hi-fi. It could be charging extra for additional content like audiobooks. But I think more broadly, I think there's a clear opportunity now that you know we have all the data available to leverage the entire artist-fan relationship. And that could be including access to pre-release songs, VIP ticketing, virtual concerts, or merchandise. And to give you an example, I think we're seeing some very interesting initiatives in Asia. So in South Korea, you have one company called Hype, and they launched a number of years ago a super fan platform called Weavers. And I think they had about 8 million monthly active users last year. So what it does is that for all their artists, they host a variety of free and paid content. It gives you regular updates from the artist. It helps sell artist-related merchandise. So I think that's just one of the examples in terms of how you can deepen the artist-fan relationship and monetize it. And in terms of revenue opportunity, so what we brought in our report is if we assume that only 20% of music streamers are super fan, and let's say they pay only twice as much as basically the average fan, we find a potential revenue uplift of $4 billion, and that will be you know, 25% uplift to our current revenue assumptions. And as we're talking about all these changes, really up to this point or until recently, the industry has been led mostly by these three major record labels. But we now have this, as you've been discussing, tremendous rise in streaming. We have many independent artists. We have all of these social media platforms where artists can just put their songs on and gain some traction. How is that all changing the role of these labels? I think you're absolutely right. The role of the record label has changed dramatically over the last decade and to some extent has tried to follow changes in technology. So clearly the way you now discover an artist has completely changed. Previously, you were sending scouts to concerts, pubs and clubs to try to find the next artist. And now it's all about data. It's all about how many followers you have on Instagram, how many monthly views you have on TikTok and YouTube. I just think the nature of what they do has just changed and adapted to incorporate increasingly use of technology and data. Similarly, the barriers to content creation has completely changed and distribution as well. So I think where the value add of a record label has changed, I think it's really in helping artists break out at the global level. Because what this means in terms of obviously falling various distribution content creation, that just means there's more content out there. So how do you stand up from the crowd? And I do think you need the resources, capabilities and scale of a record label to be able to promote your music, help you basically cut through the noise and achieve global success. So what's interesting is when you actually look at the default deals that have been signed between some of the household names and some of the majors, we actually seen them expanding their deals with the labels to not only just cover aspects such as streaming or, or physical sales, but also include now licensing, merchandising, 
there's many more ways now for an artist to make money. For instance, you're producing documentary on Netflix. So actually, a lot of the big artists have been leaning more towards labels as opposed to moving further apart. So for these reasons, we think the major labels will continue to dominate given their scale. But obviously, you're seeing faster growth coming from the independence. And that's also due to the change in the revenue mix because you have those Anglo-Saxon dominated developed markets reaching that saturation or the, the global big clay slowing down. And you're seeing a very strong growth from non-English speaking markets, emerging markets, where you're also seeing the rise of local artists and local music. And that's typically markets where the majors have less of a presence. But we have seen this tremendous rise in independent artists on these social media platforms. They don't have the benefit of labels. Has there been any progress in terms of establishing music royalties for this type of consumption on these social platforms? I think with the fall in the barriers of music creation and distribution, we've seen a growing number of artists uploading songs onto the streaming platforms, making revenue out of the streaming platforms like Spotify or TikTok or YouTube. I think we've really seen the democratization of music with the growth of streaming. So for instance, there are more than 200,000 artists now on Spotify and they upload 120,000 songs every single day. And what this means is if you're a smaller artist, obviously what independent artist means is like either you're assigned to independent label, but then you also have the what we call the DIY artists and they all basically don't have any label. And very often they are basically semi-professional artists. So what basically the platforms like Spotify and YouTube and TikTok have really allowed is the emergence of basically these new categories of artists who don't necessarily have a label and that enables them just to make money out of their music, which is not something that was even possible previously. Having said that, when you actually look at the revenue concentration in the industry and when you look at the concentration in terms of consumption, it's still heavily skewed towards the top. So 95%, I think, of the revenue generated on Spotify comes from less than 5% of its artists. So while it has never been easier, I think, for artists to upload their music and be discovered and make revenue, it's just harder, I think, to really break out as a global artist and to maintain that commercial success over a long period of time. I think that becomes more and more difficult as you still continue to face new competition every single day. And another way, of course, that people seem to be consuming music in a big way post the COVID shutdowns is live events. We're seeing this resurgence in live events. What's really driven that rebound, which I think in a lot of ways has been stronger than expected? Yeah, you're absolutely right. Clearly, the live music was one of the most impacted industry with COVID. We estimate the revenues probably fell more than 80% in 2020. And actually, live events like music rebounded much stronger than we expected. This is also something we're seeing elsewhere. For instance, I also cover trade shows and that has also been booming. And that tells you that people are willing to pay to connect with their artists. And that really complements your listening habit of, you know, streaming music on Spotify, Apple Music. So we think at the end of 2022, we're probably back to 2019 level already. And that has by far exceeded our expectation. And I think it comes down to several factors, really. I think both supply-led and also demand-led. So if you think about 2022, I mean, a lot of the artists haven't been touring for probably two years. And that's basically their main source of income. So the number of artists for whom more than 9% of their revenue actually comes from touring is actually very difficult to make money from just streaming. 
And so we see an incredible amount of artists coming out on tour in 2022. So a lot of that obviously was supply-led. But at the same time, yeah, there's clearly increased demand for live events as well. And I think part of that is driven by the structural trend of social media and streaming apps continuously stimulating demand. And then one of the factors I mentioned earlier, which is the globalization of music, the fact that we have more and more local artists, original artists becoming international superstars like K-pop or Latin artists, that also basically helped fuel that sort of inventory of artists going on tour. And that's why going forward, we do expect 2023 to be more like a normalized year of growth. And we, and we do think beyond that, we'll return to sort of a single digit annualist growth rate out to 2030. And Lisa, let me pivot for a second. We can't seem to have a conversation these days without talking about artificial intelligence, but it's had a big impact even to date on the music industry because of the ability of generative AI to produce creative content, new content. So how are you seeing that impact the industry at this point? Sure. I think like many other industries, I think it's still too early to fully assess the impacts of Gene AI. But music is content-based industry and it's about content creation. So we do think Genetive AI and its kind of form is going to help to further lower the barriers to entry when it comes to content creation. It's also going to boost productivity. For instance, previously, an artist probably needed to be able to sing or play an instrument. And now Genetive AI has the power to remove that level of friction in the music creation process. You just type a prompt and you can basically generate a pretty nice song. I think for professional artists more particularly, I think it's like to support the process and further enhance the speed of music creation as you don't have to record and re-record multiple times like in the past. So I think what this uh, potentially means is we talked about the increase in supply of songs earlier with 120,000 songs uploaded on to Spotify every day. And there's likely to be a, a continuation of that explosion of new songs being created. So again, we continue to further assist with that democratization in the music industry. But what we also think is, again, in a more crowded ecosystem, GTA AI will probably raise the barriers to success. And that's why we still think the value add of record labels is important. But are you seeing this does raise some concerns about protecting the intellectual property of artists? Are you seeing any steps being taken or guardrails being put in place to address this? You asked a very important question which is about how you protect the IP. And obviously, those Genitive AI models need to be trained on large data sets. And for instance, for Genitive AI to be able to create the synthetic voice of an artist, it will have to be trained on a data set that includes the original copyrighted soundtracks by the artist. So I think the question is, are these models able to use copyrighted songs for these models? And how much would they need to pay for it? And I think today the legislation, I think, is still being developed. I don't think there's a clear framework. Uh, I think it's going to take probably some time, probably a year or more for this to be tested in court. But I think in the near term, what we're probably going to see is that the key players in the ecosystem, whether it's labels and the major streaming platforms, they will be working together to control the deployment of Gemini AI. I think and that will take place before the regulatory framework we touched upon earlier will catch up with the technological advancements. And I think what is key here, what we're already seeing, is that there's a clear desire from everyone, from all the key parties, to basically want to control and limit the potential use of AI-generated music in the ecosystem. 
So lots of changes have occurred as we've been discussing in the music industry over the last couple of decades. What are you watching in terms of future trends? I think obviously there are a lot of things which are likely to happen. In our report, we do argue that the industry will be facing a very interesting turning point with significant changes to take place in the coming months and coming years when it comes to the monetization of music content and terms of segmentation of the different offerings, but also changes to the royalty payout system. So there's actually a lot that we are expecting. But having said that, again, our forecast for the next sort of decade hasn't really changed. We still think the industry will continue to grow at about sort of high single digit per year, which 1.2 billion paid subscribers by 2030. And that will come from ongoing increase in streaming penetration growth. And in addition to that, and a big difference versus historically, is we're going to start to see more recurring price increases. So that's a big catalyst that we're going to be waiting for. Then you're going to add on top of that the monetization of the super fans, which we don't even factor into our forecast, but that could add about 25% to our current pay streaming forecast. And then it's going to be about how you realign the stream payouts with the value that is being generated by a song or an artist to a platform. That's obviously more difficult to quantify the impact, but we do think that will change because the current systems are outdated. A lot of things still to happen, but we're still positive on the outlook for the industry. Indeed, it seems like there's a lot of opportunities ahead. Lisa, so great to have you. Thank you very much. It was great to be here. Thanks for listening to another episode of Goldman Sachs Exchanges, recorded on Monday, August 7th, 2023. If you enjoyed this show, we hope you follow on your platform of choice and tune in next week for another episode. Make sure to share and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And if you'd like to learn more, visit gs.com and sign up for Briefings, a weekly newsletter from Goldman Sachs about trends shaping markets, industries, and the global economy. All price references and market forecasts correspond to the date of this recording. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. The information contained in this podcast does not constitute research or a recommendation from any Goldman Sachs entity to the listener. Neither Goldman Sachs nor any of its affiliates makes any representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the statements or any information contained in this podcast, and any liability, therefore, including in respect of direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage, is expressly disclaimed. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Goldman Sachs, and Goldman Sachs is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of this podcast by any listener is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Goldman Sachs to that listener, nor to constitute such person a client of any Goldman Sachs entity.